Well Magazine. This is Raw Materials Three Ways, and I'm Dan McGinn. I'm an architect and writer, but for RM3, consider me your guide to the fascinating and surprisingly dramatic world where materials and humans intersect. When does an architect become an architect? For many architects, the passion for building started young with toy building kits. For Frank Lloyd Wright, the world-famous cape-wearing architect who ruled the architectural roost for most of the early part of the 20th century, childhood play was crucial to his development as a master builder. He often attributed his ability to think three-dimensionally and understand space and form to his early years playing with a set of wooden geometric blocks created by educator Friedrich Froebel in the mid-19th century. The toys were revolutionary at the time. Froebel, who founded the first kindergarten school, thought play was necessary for the development of the whole or free-thinking child, and many of his ideas became the foundation for modern education. As building sets evolved over time, they often reflected changes in education and shifting cultural trends. The toy manufacturers are trying to impart that lesson about how the world should work and also to try to set kids loose. What would you like the world to look like? What would it look like if, if you could create it? Sarah Levitt is a curator at the Building Museum in Washington, D.C. She led the curation of an interactive exhibit called Play, Work, Build, which shows some of the museum's extensive architectural toy collection and allows kids to play with individually sized blocks as well as giant oversized foam blocks. On a Monday morning over the summer, the gallery space was bustling with kids. Well, right here it's actually kind of easy because I just go like this, this, it will fall down, so I'm adding blocks underneath it. At the turn of the 20th century in Liverpool, an inventor and politician named Frank Hornby created what would be known as Meccano, a building kit with a satisfying collection of little metal plates, beams, wheels, gears, and pulleys. Tapping into the energy of the increasingly industrialized world, kids could bolt and unbolt the parts in a variety of ways, exploring mechanical forces and connections as they powered up their ideas. America's answer to Meccano soon followed. The Erector Set, patented by Alfred Carlton Gilbert in 1913. As the only building set at the time to include a small motor, it became very popular. Four generations of American youth have grown up with Erector a toy that has become as much a part of our life as baseball and hot dogs. Erector has exciting appeal for all boys. Around 1916, Frank Lloyd Wright's son, John Lloyd Wright, got into the lucrative building set game with Lincoln Logs, a collection of little notched miniature logs that you could put together to form various structures. Their introduction a year before America's entry into World War I reflects a spirit of patriotism and nostalgia for the frontier and pioneer culture. That's a, a time where Americans, especially white Americans, are getting nervous about lots of different things, including industrialization, immigration, all kinds of um, things, I guess, that we're still concerned with. Um, and one of their answers to that was to look to the past to a quote-unquote simpler time. A lot of people talk about Lincoln Logs being named after Abraham Lincoln because he was purportedly born in a simple log cabin and rose to be president of the United States, right? That's a lot to put on a toy and certainly <laughs> a five-year-old playing with a toy, but that's certainly in the marketing. The sets eventually included characters, forts, fences, even a garden. War narratives also came into play, presumably to attract boys, the target audience. Plus, the sets got bigger over time. At the Play, Work, Build exhibit, swarms of kids were playing with Lincoln Logs and big blue foam blocks. I made a house uh, with two long pieces, and then I made an opening on both sides and then a, mo and then a room connecting them. 
You can make houses, mostly like barns and towers. Um, I like it because you can knock things down, rebuild them. They're reusable toys. Although many kids connected with Lincoln Logs, I have to admit that I found no joy in them. Clicking together the little logs into various predetermined rectangular shapes didn't quite cut it. It didn't help that the set at my school was made of strawberry jam and crusted plastic. At least the original Lincoln Logs were made of real redwood. Maybe to a 10-year-old in 1916, they were a revelation. But to my 10-year-old self in 1976, decked out in my Star Wars t-shirt, the whole thing seemed a little phony. You could make a cabin, or a smaller cabin, or a cabin-looking tower, and then you could knock everything down and throw the individual cabin-looking logs at your sister. I feel kind of bad for the designer, John Lloyd Wright, because I can't imagine the pressure to be the son of Frank Lloyd Wright. But the bottom line was that for me, Lincoln Logs could never compete with the real, full-scale logs that existed without suggested assembly instructions in the dense woods next to my house in St. Joseph, Missouri. The woods were complex and ever-changing, a little dark, a little dangerous. The lessons I learned in them with my friends lie somewhere on the psycho-experiential spectrum between Montessori and Lord of the Flies. These trees, logs, limbs, and sticks were like stem cells, ready to be magically transformed into anything, part of a fort or a makeshift bridge over a creek, or the abandoned peg leg of a 20-foot-tall pirate named Rubidoux. Or, a log could just be a log, and that was interesting too. I was fascinated by the natural life-and-death drama that existed around me, a story of never-ending growth and decay, where powdery old logs gave rise to fragile saplings. Okay, so we're walking now and recording. We are in the uh, wooded area in the Mississippi River Gorge near Minnehaha Falls uh, Regional Park. That's Jennifer Yost. She's a principal with VJAA in Minneapolis, a firm that is known for their poetic use of wood in buildings. We're in right now a kind of a bowl-like landscape that's wooded, and so you can kind of see uphill in all directions. Most of the older forested area is, is oak, a little bit of elm, a little bit of this and that of whatever has been transplanted here. But the trees in this area are uh, much older, which makes the experience of the forest much more interesting. Um, they become almost like characters or figures and are very recognizable, where you don't just get the sense of kind of the mesh of the trees where they're all indistinguishable from each other. Each of them kind of has their own nature. It didn't take much convincing for Jennifer to leave her desk and take a stroll in the woods. Walking in the local landscape with her business partner and husband Vincent James and their dog George is how some of their best work happens. Minnesota, its climate and culture, has a huge bearing on her sense of place and architecture's role within it. Her connection to the landscape and her thinking about trees at the cellular level helps her recognize new ways to use wood. We see things that are recognizable components like an acorn and a branch and a leaf, and those are all like symbols of what a tree is. But I think we don't think that much about the cellular structure or the kind of layers inside of a tree that give its basic characteristics and how it behaves when you make something out of it or you unmake something. Um, the idea that there are kind of living and dead layers within a tree at the same time and they behave in different ways. 
the cell structure, these kind of linear cells, the bending that's kind of enabled by its, you know, really fine microscopic kind of characteristics is really interesting. Jennifer also sees opportunities for the built environment to merge organically with the natural environment, structures that enhance the landscape and vice versa. Many of our projects are on these kind of wooded sites. And I think that's a really important part of it, that initial kind of walk through a site where you're starting to imagine how the building might amplify your feeling of the site and the woods and the topography and the forest and, you know, any natural features that you're experiencing as part of it. And when you first come to the site, you can't imagine removing any of this because it's all beautiful. Um, But then you start to see the idea of the architecture and the landscape as being interconnected with each other and that they work together. And then all of a sudden, the building doesn't start to be an extraction of the woods, but a part of the woods. She is fascinated by how different types of Minnesotans see wood and how their buildings reflect their culture, beliefs, and their awareness of the variable amounts of time embodied in trees. Big trees are impressive, sure, but you can do a lot with smaller, younger trees, too. I think there's some really great history of these finer structures, you know, using smaller components more repetitively. With a larger component, obviously, you don't need as many, but when you have the smaller pieces, it just creates almost like a veil over a space um, when you're creating a structure out of them, where, you know, it's a very clear, legible rhythm of, you know, heavy timber structure, very big beams, everything becomes a figure. And all of a sudden, when you start to use smaller pieces, and you think of some of the more traditional, like Native American structures that are woven more basket-like, like the wigwam or some of the early settlers, the round barns that they built out of these smaller components. They're really more basket-like. A material of great interest to Jennifer that lies somewhere on the spectrum between heavy timber and woven branches is plywood. Although it was first introduced in America at the tail end of the Civil War, the idea of laminating small layers of wood together with glue really started with a British shipbuilder named Samuel Bentham around 1800. A half century later, Emmanuel Nobel invented the rotary lathe, which basically spun logs and peeled them into a continuous thin sheet of wood, which could then be chopped into rectangles and glued together. Think of it as an old-school apple peeler, except much bigger. And instead of an apple, there's a 12-foot log. For Jennifer, plywood is more than a workhorse commodity. It's an essential building block that can contribute to surprisingly graceful structures. The Minneapolis Rowing Club Boathouse, completed by Jennifer's firm in 2001, is a deceptively simple two-story shed at the foot of a bridge on the Mississippi Riverbank with a pleasantly warped roof. The striking, naturally daylit building is equal parts austere and exuberant. Jennifer and her team used a rhythmic series of roof trusses made out of glue-laminated beams, steel posts, and steel cables. Each truss is slightly different, and the effect is hypnotic. As the angled trusses come together in the space and support the curving plywood roof structure, they reflect the grace and power of a rower's oar stroke. Everything kind of moving around a physical thing that's fixed. So the idea that motion could be registered in the thing itself was really important to us. The movement of rowers, the movement of building systems and components being assembled by people building it and the layers of that happening and and feeling a sense of that motion kind of being caught within the structure and then being on the water and the water moving around you. For the boathouse, theories about movement and the idea that a building in itself is an artifact of construction and movement shaped the design. 
Buildings are, are kind of a datum that other things play off against and move around, um, and they have characteristics that are about motion. You know, the, the sequence of construction that, you know, by the time that the building is complete, you don't see anymore, but you see traces of those layers and movements of people putting the building together is really fascinating. We used a lot of still images of rowers and, and kind of the motion of somebody rowing. We looked at wave structures. We looked at a lot of stop-motion photography, people kind of at the turn of the century trying to capture movement through stop-motion. The familiar forms of the horses and the birds where before that they didn't really understand those very specific movements that happened so quickly that you missed them. So we used a lot of that kind of material to talk about these concepts of kind of capturing motion in a still frame. There's also a playful resourcefulness at work here, influenced by Jennifer's childhood in Minnesota. She played with building sets growing up, but her true architectural education started outside. When you're in the woods, just trying to find stuff to do, you often make things, you make forts, you make weapons, you just build with what you find. I think that kind of play where you're cutting a branch off of something and bending it versus finding a branch on the ground and discovering that it breaks. You start to notice that branches off of different trees do different things and also have different characteristics. Jennifer Yost manages to use peeled logs formed into plywood to create structures that capture the life and movement of the trees around them, the people within them, and the structures themselves. But what else can you do with a log? Paul Massey, an architect with Bates Massey in East Hampton, New York, has been experimenting with wood for decades, including a fresh take on the use of shakes and shingles in his designs. So my name is Paul Massey. Our firm is primarily uh, focused on residential with some hospitality. Our sort of backyard of work is the northeast of the U.S., and, but we have worked on projects overseas and, and across the country. Let's start at the very beginning of the story, and maybe you could talk a little bit about your upbringing in Long Island and how that informed your career path as an architect. I was born in New York City, but before I was born, in the uh, mid-60s, my parents, who are both artists, built a, a small house in Montauk, New York, and that was their getaway, so to speak. Um, they'd go to paint. My sort of passion for the landscape and the eastern end of Long Island developed because of this was where I summered. Eventually, my parents did move to the suburbs of New York, but it was really never home. It was always on the eastern end of Long Island. But having that experience, I was able to kind of witness the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s. And you know, when I started architecture school, I was able to kind of see a lot of really interesting you know, forefront in residential design. Construction is, is so embedded in our community. It just kind of became embedded in my DNA. So there were a lot of construction sites that were around and just sort of grabbing things and, and kind of making whether we were, it was like little houses for ourselves or we used to make skateboard ramps. And, and then I think, you know, that did sort of translate into sort of the, the idea of craft and how things go together. I loved when you talked about what it meant to summer in um, East Hampton, and maybe you could just talk a little bit about what, what do you think makes the place special? For me, and, and it's got to be for everyone else, it's the landscape. I, I truly believe it's one of the most beautiful places, and I don't know if it's just because that sort of what I'm familiar with and certain textures, certain colors, and when clients approach us and they purchase a beautiful piece of property, we try to just listen 
we don't we don't tell them what they should build or we just uh, it's something that we a part of our process is just understanding who they are and how they live but every one of them talk about whether the views or the trees or the sort of the topography of it and we keep that in mind and, and try to make sure that the house reflects that and enhances that and doesn't combat that or just destroy it because you know, it, it's pretty easy when, when someone's saying, oh, I want a tennis court, a basketball court, or a pool, a pool house, patio, and house, and parking for 10 cars, that the landscape's gone. And then, what, you know, they, they lost what they, the purpose was to begin with. Paul thinks it's important that design reflect the unique characteristics of a place, the light, breezes, views, and topography that make the place different from any place else. A house he designed in Amagansett in an area called the Dunes reflects his way of thinking. The dunes had a had a very sort of distinctive shape, and in doing a little research, we, we sort of found out that they're called these parabolic dunes. These dunes were formed because of a predominant wind direction. There's also some various factors of sort of like wetlands and things like that, but when you sort of scale out and you look at an aerial map, you see a series of these dunes. It sort of looks like they're almost like traveling across the landscape, but for thousands of years. And they all kind of have a similar shape. It's a pretty amazing experience if you ever walk through the dunes and you sit inside one of those bowls and it's like the acoustics different, the wind's different, the sun's different, everything's being reflected on you. And, you know, taking that experience and, and sort of saying, well, how does that inform the architecture? And that was sort of a way that we not only sort of ventilated the house, but shaped how the house was was read and we used a series of these sort of canopies that we designed as the facade that kind of filtered out the very strong breezes they get in the summertime but gave gave some privacy to the people that live there the owners paul also pays attention to the materials that previous generations have utilized in the hamptons for over two centuries wood has played a major role in the region's architecture it's one of those things subconsciously that you've been so exposed to for many years that it's just a, a part of you, so to speak, and that you get a, a sense of warmth from it. it. It's something that it's native to our community and that it's the predominant building material. And that was just for sort of various reasons, whether it's craftsmen or transportation. Because of that, we have some really good craftsmen. And, you know, in turn, when, when you start sort of understanding wood and looking at it it's vast like whether it's you know the texture to it you know what the character is what the grade of it the density of it how it's cut off the log it goes in deep and um, there's a there's a whole science in itself behind that so it's also a very malleable material and it can really do a lot but i think it also lends itself to a residential scale people can identify with it and it, it's sort of nice in, in terms of like an enclosure as a space. And I think that it's calming in some ways. I'd, I'd be interested to know a little bit about your materials library at your office and how you first start to introduce a client to different materials, specifically different types of, of wood <laughs> to get them thinking beyond well, just half like... Of it, half of it's on our roof. <laughs> so usually with our materials libraries, we... We order two samples. One one stays in the office and one goes on the roof and just sits out there in, in the weather. And, it, and it's just about seeing, okay, 
what's going to happen with this material? What color uh, is it going to turn? Is it going to become brittle and crack and, and split? And so when we show a client, we let them know, hey, this has been sitting on our roof for two years. This is what it looks like with no finish on it. A lot of our projects, we do not put a finish on the wood um, on the on the exteriors and the interiors. Sometimes we need to obviously to protect floors and and, and and areas that can have some high traffic, but we really try to leave it as natural as possible and and that way sort of just letting it go and let it do its thing and and we we like to watch it age gracefully over time. Can you talk a little bit about the tradition of shingling a building and I you know. Your area is famous for shingle-style houses, but that was a little bit in response to what was happening a century or two before in the colonial times. And was there a utility associated with shingling structures that was unique to America? Or were, tell us maybe a little bit more about that Wood is, is something, a, a resource that we have plenty of in our area, um, or at least back then. And, you know, what's nice about shingling is it, you don't need long lengths, you know, boards, and that you can use much shorter lengths. But also, too, the way that the geography is in our area, it's a long sort of island where there's one road coming in, one road coming out. I think transportation is definitely um, an issue that we have, and I think it's always been an issue in our area. And so, you know, smaller, lighter materials that that could travel has a huge advantage over over other materials, and so I think you know that became a ready readily available resource that that people used. Hampton's cottages have sported shingles for hundreds of years, but when you stop to think about it, this supposedly commonplace technique is kind of a wild idea. Could you imagine if you know you're in a community or an area that sort of shingling was not a part of their building culture and you said, okay, I'm gonna take thousands and thousands of little pieces of wood and you gotta overlap them and so that the seams don't allow any water in and then you know you have to shape them to the roof and you know, people would just say, well, you're nuts. That's, that's a crazy way to build a house, you know, as, as a part of its envelope. But it's, it's become so much a part of what we do in our area that almost every tradesman in some point in their career had, had done shingles. But it's also, it's a, it's a very basic technique. The Underhill House is an example of a typical Bates-Massey design in that there's nothing typical about it. Instead of a house arrangement of a basic form surrounded by front, back, and side yards, in the Underhill House there are four distinct shingled pavilions, cleverly linked together, separated by intimate courtyards and exterior spaces. Instead of focusing views out, as is typical in many houses in the Hamptons, the house focuses inward. Once the cleverness of this idea starts to sink in, you also start to notice that there's something interesting going on with the shingles. Their scale and the way they capture the light are different than you'd see on a typical shingled house. On the exterior, we, we use these larger taper sawn shakes. If you look closely, you'll see that the sort of the shakes have a hard shadow line. And what we did is we had an uh, um, underlayment of, an, of a shingle, so it was sort of tucked up about, you know, a half an inch from the shingle on the face of the building. And what we ended up doing was using two different species of cedar, and so that one that weathered a sort of a darker brown was the underlayment. And so when you're reading through the gaps of the shingle on the exterior, you just sort of see like a shadow line. But also looking up in it, uh, the darker brown red is a shadow and it also gave the ability to sort of give a projection off of the face of the building. And so it enhanced the size 
that the shingle looked um, because not only were they fairly long, they appeared to be very thick as well. Architects play with scale and proportion like a kid plays with Lincoln Logs. There are times where it makes sense to use materials in the typical proportions that occur as they are purchased off the shelf, and there are times when deviating from what is typical results in a more dynamic design. Paul often chooses the latter path. For the Underhill House, this meant working with the shingle manufacturer to get widths that were a few inches thinner than normal, to exaggerate their length. It's a lot of trial and error, and a lot of our clients, when they come to us, they understand that we haven't done a lot of these details before, um, and that you know, whereas we're going in a new direction, but that's why they came to us to begin with. It's just a lot of research and a, and a lot of sort of asking questions and how to make this work. As you're an architect, and, and if it doesn't work, guess what? You're responsible for it. Yeah, I had that call earlier today. <laughs> so far, we've peeled logs to make plywood and sawn them to make shingles. What else can you do with a log? Just down the road from Paul Massey in East Hampton, another world-class architect has a few ideas. For the last five years, Maziar Berus has been exploring an ancient Japanese process of charring wood boards called shosukiban. Using live flames to char boards for your home might seem counterintuitive at first because it kind of looks like, you know, your home caught fire. But the Japanese have been doing this since the early 1700s. By burning off the organic material and exposing a carbonized surface, the boards perform a bit better than painted or stained wood. A conversation with a client who had a bad past experience with termites led Maziar to research this technique, and he quickly fell in love with it. So we came across this Japanese process, or product, really. It's called shusugiban. Sugi means uh, wood. And it's a heat-treated process where one face of a wood plank is treated with heat to the point where that surface gets charred. And you then pour water over it and then apply some uh, finishing oil to it. And what that charring does is that it increases the resistance of that material to termite infestation It also increases slightly ignition resistance of whatever, of the wood, whatever resistance it has, that gets slightly increased with this process. It also slightly decreases the spread of like flames and fire in in the wood. Like Jennifer and Paul, Maziar is interested in understanding how a raw material can be transformed to achieve wide ranging goals. With charred wood, Maziar was able to tap into his interest in architecture that communicates a sense of simplicity and quiet timelessness that feels responsive to the conditions of East Hampton. There was something more that I found really intriguing about the product, and I think it coincided with a direction in my work away from the kind of abstract sleekness of some modern architecture that I was seeing all around us. The idea that wood is always evolving uh, versus, say, non-evolving material like cement boards, which are also used on uh, as exterior siding. It doesn't need to be refinished every, say, three to five years or more, depending on your region, that it doesn't have to have a sleek look from the start, that 
it kind of embraces a sort of imperfection that we were finding to be a welcome direction in our work to allow materials to age gracefully, to let them be what they are and not force them into becoming a dead, inert material and always having to maintain them in a kind of frenzied manner. We sent Maziar on a field trip to a project where he used charred cypress, one he calls the house in the lanes. So we're heading to Amagansett right now, which is uh, the next uh, town nearby, about 10 minutes away from East Hampton. Really charming, small, almost like a village. We have a number of projects going up in Amagansett, so it's, I've gotten to know it really well. Very close to the ocean. The owner, Anne, was nice enough to let him stop by and poke around. So here we are at House in the Lanes. We just drove, drove up the driveway. This was uh, designed in 2016 and finished in 2017. End of 2017. The House in the Lanes is striking in its simplicity. Two barn-like structures make up the house, one concrete and one wood. Let's first say hi to Anne, and then we can come back around. Their narrow gabled ends face the street, allowing the longer sides to extend back into the site. Maziar's restraint pays off. The home doesn't try to impress you with over-the-top architectural gimmicks. It feels subdued and relaxed in its environment. I'm standing between tall grasses. We have a boardwalk that cuts through the grasses to the back. We're standing on that right now. I'm looking at the concrete wall, which was the gable end of the garage. I have to tell you, it just looks great. It's gotten really light since the last time I saw it. It has this almost a creamy light color to it. Some of the dark hues, the watermarks are just disappeared and gotten really light. And I'm looking at the wood, the charred cypress, which is looking really, um, I just want to go up and touch it and run my hand along it. It's very quiet here. There's a slight breeze. It's kind of, the sun is up, so it's also hot. We can walk around a bit. Maziar had previously researched charred wood for another project and felt that it would be perfect for the house in the lanes. First time I mentioned it, the, I, I, I got a very strong no. Uh, I, I don't want this uh, kind of reaction. And I think that was more based on just uh, maybe some anticipation by our client of what he had perhaps initially envisioned the house to be covered with, which I think may have been like Western Cedar siding. But we talked about it, we showed it to him, and he would say to us something really interesting that if the material is from the start has a kind of imperfection to it, that doesn't bother him. But if it's supposed to be like smooth and clean and sleek, and then you suddenly see something in it that's not, that that would really bother him. And this wood offered him a way out. Oh, so here I can have a siding that from day one won't, be, won't look in a conventional way perfect. It will have that kind of imperfection or age kind of already built into it, and he won't have to worry about it. There's a range of charring in the tradition from just kind of a, a, a light touch that kind of brings out the grain of the wood all the way to a really deep, almost alligator-like, alligator skin-like quality. And on, 
on this house, noticed that you uh, kept it pretty light. Also noticed that you used the charred wood on the interior of the house and was wondering whether or not the decision to use it both in the interior and the exterior kind of helped you hone in on what the right level of char was. You will see some charred material that is almost like charcoal. You see kind of like the cracks that you normally would see in charcoal. It's almost like alligator skin. Then you might see some charred wood that doesn't have those kind of cracks in it, but it's still really dark and almost black. And then you have a kind of light effect where the brown or light brown hues of the wood come through, but like the grains, the grain itself has a kind of a charred effect. And my misconception early on was that, oh, so you can either char wood a lot or you can char it a bit or less. And so you get different kinds of effects on the wood. But traditionally, at least, the way it was done in Japan and also by a few companies here now is that when you treat wood and heat treat it, you really just char it. You pretty much char most woods in the same way. Then you either brush the wood with a steel brush once. And in Japanese, that's called gendai. And in, if you brush it twice, it's called pika pika. On, with this project, we got uh, material for the exterior that was at least brushed twice. So you would see the grains which are charred, but also you can also see the wood. We didn't have that kind of gator alligator finish to it. And that idea of bringing the outside in, of like letting an exterior wall of a house kind of continue itself into a house, connecting indoors and outdoors together, that led to using the same type of charred cypress in the house in some specific locations. Uh, we just came to the entry of the house and there's a concrete wall. It feels really cool here right now, which is really nice. And if I touch the concrete wall, it's, it's slightly cooler than the temperature around us. The wood siding, is, it's really like, it's just, it's just weathered better. It's just looking better every time. It's the little splinters, if there were any, are all kind of washed away and gone. We're at the front door. There's a mahogany door. We're walking through right now. It's a really heavy, solid, kind of two and a half inch thick door. As soon as you come in, you have this incredible scent of the cypress. It just smells so wonderful here. And it's not some kind of like artificial perfume or anything. It's just the smell of the wood that it feels so fresh, like you're kind of in a, like in the woods. I'm not smelling anything burnt. When I run my hand over the wood, nothing rubs off at all. The grains are charred, but the, like the wood itself is coming through in its kind of more brownish color. There might be some, you know, maybe a little bit of that, the smell of some kind of charring smell, charred smell that's imbued in, in the wood. I can't, my nose can't pick that up. What's it taste like? <laughs> Dan, I'm not going to like 
you know, lick the wood to tell you what it's going to taste like, what it tastes like, okay? I mean, I would, but I just don't want that to be on, on national. I don't want that to be on national, like, you know, radio, even though I probably will do that at some point just so I know what it tastes like. I'd, I'd, I think you should give it a little, little, little taste. Let us know what it tastes like. I'm going to give it a taste, okay? <laughs> I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> Um, hmm. It tastes like it tastes like uh, my the New York City apartment just changed its water tank, and I think they also use Cypress, and so for the first six months the water has a special taste to it, which is really wonderful. But it kind of tastes like that. It has you do taste the Cypress. I probably also tasted all the the finishing oil they put in there. So if I get sick, um, you're gonna hear from me. Uh, I'd like to go to the basement quickly to make sure that, you know, this is a very technical kind of visit. I mean, going to a basement. But sometimes I just like to do that to make sure that foundationally things are fine and that there's no moisture down here. So I'm walking down. Oh, it's a nice concrete floor. It's really cool down here in a beautiful way. The plywood looks really great. There's no kind of warping going on here. I don't see any signs of like leaks or anything like that, which, I mean, not that you normally would with a house of this caliber of construction. But um, now we're walking back up. I think we should let our, the owner, Anne, have her peaceful time inside the house because she's sitting outside in the heat. I love talking to Mazier about architecture. His enthusiasm and curiosity is infectious. I asked him about growing up in Tehran, the child of an engineer and a fashion designer. The building blocks he played with as a kid were located on his dad's job sites, and they were the real deal. They literally were, were full-scale building sets. We would see the way things were done from start to finish. One day, I recall, was on a site with a few friends. I must have been, I don't know, in my may have been 11 or 12 years old, and I, we found ourselves in front of a pile of red bricks. We just started stacking them, staggering them, and building what became like a little square, like, say, room without a roof. I was just so taken by that, like making something out of nothing. I was so proud of myself and us after we'd finished that. It just seemed like such a great thing to do for me and with my friends and myself. And then on the other hand, I'd come home and my mom had a studio where she, with help, would cut templates of her, the clothing that she designed, and draw on those templates. And so that was like really instructive as well, seeing how something is drawn before it's, it's put together and assembled. I think they just somehow infused me with that kind of interest. So, when does an architect become an architect? The buildings of Maziar Berus, Paul Massey, and Jennifer Yost teach us that the process starts the day you're born, maybe before, and it never really stops. When a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? I don't know. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But once it's there, horizontal on the forest floor, it definitely makes a log. The more important question for me is, once that log is lying there, does it make a sound? That one I can answer. I think it does. 
If you're curious and if you listen, really listen, in ways that both kids and architects listen, you can start to hear its voice, and it's got a lot of ideas to share. Whether it's in the form of plywood, shingles, or carbonized boards, a log is a literal expression of the land it came from, allowing the historic and cultural roots of a place to be tied up into the building itself. A log is open-minded, up for almost anything. Used by the earliest builders in our country, it continues to inspire architects of the present and future. Next time on RM3, we'll dig deep with three surprising uses of soil on dirt three ways. RM3 is a podcast by Dwell Media, your guide to living with good design. Jenny Shia produces the show, and Jonna McCone is our editor and producer. I'm your host, Dan McGinn. Our theme music is by Slog Ralden. Thanks to Jennifer Yos, Paul Massey, and Mazier Berus for contributing to Logs Three Ways. Check out dwell.com slash podcast to learn more and see images of what we cover today. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Dwell Magazine on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to get your daily design fix. We hope you enjoyed Logs Three Ways, and we'll see you next time as we dig into the backstory of another raw material.